Amen. Turn in your Bible this morning to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15. It's on page 1316, 1316 in the Pew Bible. I'm going to read a very extensive portion here, if you don't mind. I'm going to um, read from chapter 15, 1 through 29. And some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless, saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem and the apostles and elders concerning, to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. And therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees, who had believed, stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them, and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together to look into this matter, and there had been much debate. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. And all the multitude kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul, as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had stopped speaking, James answered and said, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with these words of the prophets agree, and with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, and then he quotes from Amos, After these things I will return. And I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, in order that the rest of mankind may see the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from the things contaminated by idols, and from fornication, and from what is strangled and from blood, and from, for Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preached him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren, and they sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders, and to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we've heard that some of our number, of whom 
to whom we gave no instructions, have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. It seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to, to send to you and our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by the word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. Thank you for that, uh, sticking with me on that very long reading there. But I think this is a unit of thought here. This is a, a section we don't want to break up. Uh, we want to le- read it and understand it together. How do uh, large crowds of fans celebrate a great accomplishment of some team of theirs that has finally won a great victory? For example, the Chicago Cubs uh, last fall. Imagine winning the World Series for the first time in over 100 years, since 1908. Well, they didn't do what New Yorkers do and have a ticker tape parade right down Fifth Avenue, they had their own parade. But a parade is the way that most people find a great way to celebrate that accomplishment. And what tends to dampen a celebration like that? Well, we all know the proverbial phrase, raining on a parade. Rain on a parade. Well, what would expect to find here in this particular chapter, chapter 15 of Acts, a parade going down if you will, the main street there in Jerusalem or in Antioch, celebrating a church growth parade in a sense. Because the previous chapters, chapters 13 and chapter 14, have detailed for us an amazing summary of this groundbreaking ministry where the church, uh, the church has sent out these two ministers of Barnabas and Paul. They have planted churches there in the area known as Galatia primarily among Gentiles. Look at chapter 14, verse 27. It says that God opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. What an amazing thing God was doing here. The church is not made up of just people who are from a background of Jews, but it is for Gentiles who are now coming into the kingdom in great, great numbers. And the Apostle Paul and Barnabas have made their way now back to Syrian Antioch, the home church from which they were sent, and instead of having a bright, sunshiny celebration where they're just seeing the, 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 uh, the ticker tape uh, coming out of the, of, the, of the sky and celebrating with confetti everywhere, instead they face a downpour of dissension. Not over the music that they might be, have listened to or used in their ministry, not over the style of clothing that they wear or or have chosen to, but they're over a dissension over doctrine. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. There's a concerned group of people who have started making some noise, and they are insisting, some of these are from the sect of the, of the Pharisees, a group that affiliate themselves with, the, if you remember, the separate ones, the ones who are always cutting themselves off from people and keeping all the rules. The moralists, if you will. And they are adamantly insisting that all of these new Gentile converts 
they have to be circumcised if they're going to be true Christians and really be saved, and they have to start following all the regulations found in the law of Moses. They weren't merely raining on the parade. In some ways, we could say that they were ready to hijack the gospel parade. And it implies here, chapter 1, chapter 15, verse 1, that they weren't going to back down. It says, and they were teaching, which means they were started to teach and now they're continuing to teach. This is something that was going to go on and on. They were saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. No wonder, verse 2, there was such a great dissension that now arose at that point. This is basically a battle for the gospel of grace. And so chapter 15, in a sense, you could say, if you have chapters 14 to 1 on this side and chapter uh, 16 on to the end, chapter 28, you could say that's really the, the uh, watershed chapter of this book when you think about it. Because the, the chapter begins with doctrinal conflict between the church leaders and this subgroup within the church called Judaizer. We'll talk about more of that in a minute. And if you'll also notice, if you fast forward, go down through the, the chapter, you'll see in beginning of verse 36 and following, but particularly notice verse 39, not only is there conflict in doctrine at the beginning of the chapter, but the end of the chapter has a conflict between Paul and Barnabas. Verse 39, there's a sharp disagreement. So I am finding that the common denominator, the real chapter here, is to me held together with the understanding there's a lot of conflict going on here. Now when you hear that, how do you respond to the fact that you find conflict here in the early church? Does that surprise you? To find among committed, faithful missionaries, people who are ministering the gospel and they're successful at what they've done and they've seen great blessing through their ministry, does it surprise you to realize there's conflict now within the church? Let's face it, folks. Conflict is inevitable. Conflict is inescapable. I remember I've asked some people uh, who've been married for many, many years, maybe 40, 50 years, I've asked them, I said, well, how do you folks deal with conflict? Oh, we don't have any conflict. And I'm thinking to myself, first of all, do they talk to each other? Uh, maybe, do they hear each other? Are they still living in the same place? What do you mean you don't have conflict? It's inevitable, isn't it? It's inescapable. And the thing that I believe God is, is striving to emphasize here in Acts 15 is that the people of God must learn to deal with conflict because we're going to face it. It's going to be in our path. Invariably, it's going to cross your path, it's going to cross my path. Hopefully it won't happen before you leave today. Hopefully it'll be maybe a little later on, maybe next week sometime, or I don't long for us to find conflict everywhere we go, but it's going to come one way or another. And some conflict we need to learn to just tolerate, right? Some conflict you just say, this person's this way, I'm this way, hey, it's okay, right? An example of that in the Bible is that we have followers of Jesus who have a different 
way of looking at matters of conscience. It's happened in uh, Romans when Paul was writing to the church in Rome because we had some believers there who, let's say, let's take it out of the analogy he used, he was concerned about meat. But let's say we use the analogy of people who say, well, by a matter of my conscience, I must abstain from alcohol. And then that person says, well, you need to do the same. You must do exactly what I do when it comes to that particular issue. And so we got all kinds, or it could be the style of music that people listen to. No, you must not ever listen to this kind of music. It's absolutely bad. And this person says, no, I don't have a problem with it. And so we have people who have different views based on their conscience. Well, that particular, particular kind of conflict, if you read Romans 14 and 15, doesn't necessarily require us to have a, 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 drag, a knockdown, drag out, direct confrontation of these two people. Because what Paul says to resolve this particular kind of conflict is that you just need to grow in Christian character. You need to learn to be patient with each other. You need to learn to uh, forbear people who are different from you. You need to receive and accept the fact that there are different kinds of views on some of these matters of conscience. And so the strong believers are urged to not despise those who are weak. Paul's counsel to the strong ones is to welcome those who differ from them. And the weak believers are urged to stop, to to resist the temptation to pass judgment on those who are the stronger brethren. Well, I want to get back to the situation here in Acts 15. Because this matter could not be ignored. You can't just say, well, let's Let's agree to disagree on this one. No, this, this particular conflict has to be faced head on. You see, the gospel of grace was at stake. The unity of the church was at stake. And so I want us to consider this first conflict now, verses 1 to 29, that developed in the church. I want to consider it under three headings. The first heading is this. What are the reasons that the church was facing this kind of doctrinal conflict? What's the reason? Well, first of all, the gospel of grace, we're told in Scripture, is truly an invaluable treasure. It is impossible to put a price tag on the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it's described there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. You see, the reason that one reason that the, the worth of the gospel is beyond measure is because it costs God so much to provide it to us. It is God who gave His only Son, His one and only Son, who offered Him up on the cross for us. Peter says we were redeemed not with perishable things like uh, gold and silver, but he says we're redeemed with the precious blood of from one who was a spotless, unblemished Lamb of God, Jesus Christ Himself. And so it's God who has taken this gospel provided through His Son, Jesus Christ, and He has safeguarded it by entrusting it to the the apostles. And they were the ones who were making it known. They were the ones who were to proclaim it and to uh, share it with all and to start the church off. And so according to Paul, the gospel's is therefore, when he made his ministry and began to go from place to place, the gospel was of first importance. 1 Corinthians 15. So when Paul now hears, he comes back from this missionary journey, and you've got members of this circumcision party, people who are saying, no, 
you've got to follow all these rules and regulations. They were known as Judaizers, people who had Jewish background, who are very earnest on saying, it's not enough just to believe the gospel, to believe in Jesus and what all he did for you. You have to do that, but you also have to fill in the blank. Something else. And they're insisting that these other folks now who have been added to the church, they're not really saved unless they fill in the blank. They have to do this, they have to do that, they have to stop doing this, they have to get their hair cut, whatever it is. And so here is Paul and other Christians who are realizing this is a real problem because this is not a time to sit down and compromise, not a time to sit down and negotiate. This is a time in which the danger if it's not dealt with, if it is that if you add anything, you take any kind of additional requirement of what is necessary to become a Christian, you add anything to the requirement of faith in Jesus Christ and what He has done on the cross and what He has accomplished in His resurrection from the dead, you take anything and you add it to that, then faith becomes not so important and this becomes the matter that is now so essential. And so we've begun to ruin the whole idea of grace. And that's obviously why Paul wrote the whole book, the whole letter of Galatians, is because he realizes this issue is not going to go away. It's a very serious, serious heresy. Either the gospel of grace provides to people like you and me, helpless, hopeless sinners, either that provides us with undeserved favor, provides us with forgiveness, the gospel provides us with full adoption on the basis of grace, and we receive all that through faith, or the system is different. The system is we receive forgiveness and all those things if we adopt the, uh, adopt, uh, the understanding of faith plus something else in order to merit salvation. You have to do something in order to deserve to be saved. Well, why is this conflict such a big deal so early on? Why does it raise its, 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 uh, its alarms right from the start here? Well, one author I was reading this week suggested that because of these former Pharisees, they're so influenced by their background that many of these folks perhaps have been treated now as being cut off from their families. If they had any kind of following of Jesus, then they become people who are perceived as being you're dead to me you're cut off from me i don't want anything more to do with you because of your allegiance to jesus and they've maybe perhaps lost everything they've lost a lot in order to follow jesus and they're convinced that since jesus was the hebrew messiah everyone who intended to follow jesus in salvation they need to become a jew you need to get serious about your faith i don't know it's hard to know why they did all these things all I can tell is this one thing, very clear here. Every generation, my generation, the next generation, the previous generation to my generation, we've all been called to defend the gospel, to pass the gospel on to the next generation, the gospel of grace alone. And we need to stand up for this grace-filled gospel, and in doing so, there's always a cost that must be paid. I think of Martin Luther, who, by the way, we're coming up now in 2017, is the 500th anniversary 
of the day in which Martin Luther took the 95 statements, 95 theses it was called. He hammers it up on the door there in Worms, Germany. And he explains his concerns regarding the church of his day that needed to be reformed. It needed to be changed. It needed to be challenged with some of its views. And here he is, having made his statements in that way, one thing after another began a process by which he was now going to run into a lot of resistance to that. He was a troublemaker. He was a person making too much noise. He was a person challenging the authority of those who led the church in that day. But he kept stating the scriptures are what I'm standing on here. He made sure that the, the, the scriptures were translated into the language of the people, the German people, so that they could read it instead of some obscure language like Latin that nobody could read. So finally the day came when Luther, in challenging the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century, he had called them out. He had called them out on the basics of the gospel, that the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, through the, based on what the Scriptures alone teach. And boy, oh boy, he was being threatened. Threatened with excommunication. We're going to throw you out of the church. We're going to imprison you. We're going to punish you. Take away all of your worldly goods. All you must do now is recant. You must go back on what you've stated publicly. And look at his response he made, which is such a wonderful thing, in his defense of the gospel of grace alone. He says, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures, it's in your notes there, or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. And thus I cannot and I will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. Oh, how thankful we ought to be for people like him and many others who were church fathers, apostles, elders, theologians who down through the centuries have def defended the gospel against heresy. They have defended the gospel against the faith plus fill-in-the-blank kind of thinking, kind of belief that undermines the whole understanding of grace. You see, the gospel is worth defending. It is the only means by which alienated sinners can find a cure for our sin-sick hearts. It is the gospel. And so therefore, the gospel needs to be cherished, not changed. The gospel needs to be believed, not somehow beefed up or modified or somehow improved. Now for you and me, that's challenging because why? Because we constantly keep thinking even as a Christian, we sometimes say it's not enough just to believe. If I haven't done this, this, and this, then God doesn't really love me today. God's not pleased with me. And therefore, because I said this last week, or because I failed to do this last week, I didn't read my Bible for three days in a row, therefore, God is not pleased with me today. 
That's grace and faith in Christ plus what? Doing whatever I'm supposed to do or stop doing whatever I'm not supposed to be doing. Our confidence is in Christ, not in ourselves, my friends. And so we must believe the gospel and cherish it, not change it. Secondly, in this process of this conflict that occurred in the early church, I want us to look at how the process worked out. How did the early church, what kind of process did they follow to try to resolve doctrinal conflict? It was a very deliberate, orderly process, including all of the leaders of the church at that time. And I'm drawing now from a helpful summary that John MacArthur has provided, and I'll put these in your notes for you to have. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but sometimes when we read these things, it, it doesn't make as much sense as whether it's been summarized here, I felt like. What are the six proofs that salvation is by grace alone? And you're going to have church leader after church leader make this case. First of all, Peter gets up. He's got four points he's going to make. Peter reminds them, based on his ministry in chapter 10, recorded in Acts, in Acts chapter 10, he says, previous Gentile conversions are based on grace. They came into the church on the basis of grace, not on circumcision or baptism or anything else that they did. And Cornelius is the example of that. As a Gentile, he was saved apart from circumcision and other rituals. It was on the basis of grace. Secondly, Peter reminds him that the gift of the Holy Spirit was bestowed on the basis of grace. Remember, Cornelius received the Spirit. It was amazing. They were, they were stunned that this would happen to him. It was therefore proven to be genuine that he truly was converted on the basis of grace because he received the Spirit. Thirdly, only the gospel of grace can cleanse hearts by faith. Religious rituals are unable to fully and completely once for all cleanse the stain of sins. He says in Acts 10.43 when he was talking about Cornelius, through his name, through the name of Jesus, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. It doesn't say believes and fill in the blank, whatever it is that you think we ought to be doing or not do, believing. Number four, Peter also adds that the law is unable to save, verses 10 and 11 of Acts 15. He keeps pointing out the fact that the law, which was, by the way, what was one of the purpose of the law? The law was given so that we might have sin revealed, so that we might realize that we are not able to keep the standards of God. The standards are way too high, and there's far too many that we'll ever keep perfectly, and therefore it reveals sin and our need of a Savior. And too many of the people of Jesus' time were taking the law and they were putting it on the burdening others to say, you need to do all these things. They weren't even doing them themselves, putting a big heavy yoke around their neck. And then, as if that was not enough evidence, here comes Paul and Barnabas, and they start to talk about their own ministry, yeah, beginning in verse 12. And they remind the church there, listen, we had miracles and we've had various um, works of power and signs which accompanied our ministry. We've seen God do this time and time again, and we're preaching that gospel of grace, grace alone. And so the miracles and signs which accompanied Paul and Barnabas' ministry confirmed them as God's true spokespersons and the truthfulness of their teaching. You see, the Judaizers, this little group of people causing so much problems, they didn't have that kind of confirmation about their authority. And then lastly, 
James, the stepbrother of Jesus Christ himself, who is known as a very highly respected leader of the church there in Jerusalem, he stands up and he's got the final argument. He's going to win the day here. He's going to finally seal the deal here with this statement in which he affirms, beginning in verse 13 to 18, let's remember Old Testament prophecy or Old Testament teaching. He, re- he reads out of the book of Amos, he cites that, and he's reminding them that, listen, the Hebrew Scriptures foretold that God would save the Gentiles and that those Gentiles would not be required to first become Jews. So that basically was a council in which they all got together and stacked up evidence after evidence after evidence as to the fact that the gospel is a gospel of grace alone. And now, by the way, any council that has ever met, has no authority in the church unless it can be shown to be in accord with the Scriptures. Whatever action taken by church leaders has to always base its authority on whatever findings they find they draw together. It's based on the authority of Scriptures. All right, finally, let's just summarize what they did now. They met, they drew all the evidence together, they, they came to their conclusion Now, how do we go forward here with what we've decided? And so, notice that it includes there the leaders, the elders, the apostles. They're all together with the entire church, and they give two directives. First of all, they say, all right, these people who are these Judaizers, you need need to back off. You need to hold back with this kind of insistence that Gentile believers go out and get circumcised and all this stuff. He says, no, no. They don't need to do that in order to become a Christian. That's not necessary. And so they wrote a letter to make sure that that was clearly communicated all widely among all the churches there. They were told to stop spreading this false gospel. Secondly, the Gentile believers were told by a circulating letter that they were to try to stay away from idols. Why do they bring that up? Because if you're coming from a Gentile background and a pagan background, That was their life. It was idols everywhere and all the time. And so they're saying, you need to make a clean break with that. No more of this idol worship. It's not appropriate. You're to avoid fornication because that was a serious problem in the first century. If you come from, again, a pagan background, the kind of sexual immorality was very widespread. And they're saying, listen, uh, you're not to be involved in sexual intimacy unless it's in the context of marriage. And then he says, and listen, don't take steps that are going to offend the religious scruples of all these Jewish brothers in the church and eat some of these foods that are very problematic and do it as a way of causing offense and further division within the church. So basic, simple things required of them to say, listen, it's not a matter of you doing these things to get you in the kingdom. Just do these things because this is what it means to live in result, as a result of the gospel of grace in ways that bring harmony and celebrate the wonders that a grace, we receive the gospel by grace, and then we live out a desire to honor God who has given us that grace by what? Living a holy life, a life that pleases God. Now, what's the point for us today? We who are under grace must not impose non-biblical requirements onto other people. We needn't push our preferences on other people. We need to make sure that the elements of our lifestyle that we think are right 
We must not push those onto others and make those as the grounds for which they are mandatory for other people to follow those things as well, unless the Scripture does it. For example, some people think that only a good Christian, you're only a good Christian if you read through your Bible once a year. In the King James, I'm just using a silly example, but there are some people who think that. You're only a good Christian if you do this practice of once a year reading the King James Bible from kiver to kiver, right? From the beginning to end. Other people have said, oh, good Christians, if you're truly a good Christian and you're a married couple, you need to have lots of kids, huge family, or whatever it is. They add all kinds of crazy things. My friends, we need to be watch out, be on the lookout, beware of any kind of legalism. Because the gospel of grace alone is completely incompatible with the gospel of Jesus plus anything. They do, they do not go together. They are water and they are oil. That brings me to my third point. I'm trying to fly through this text here because there's, uh, I want to bring it down here to the end. What are the benefits that were gained by the church because they took these steps to resolve this problem of a doctrinal conflict and did so in a biblically responsible way. Well, first thing we could say is that this council in Jerusalem safeguarded the unity of the church. They're preserving the unity of the church. Instead of having the first church of salvation by grace alone on one side of the street, And on the other side of the street, they had the first church of salvation by grace plus circumcision on this side of the street. No, they didn't have that. They only have one church. And there's only one gospel. There's only one message to proclaim to all the peoples of the earth. Turn just for a second to Ephesians 4. Stay with me now. Look how this plays out here. Ephesians 4, beginning of verse 3. Ephesians 4, verse 3. Paul reminds the believers there in Ephesus. He says, listen, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What kind of unity are you talking about here, Paul? What unity exists within the church? Well, there is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Verse 14. We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto Him who is the head, even Christ. What's he saying? He's saying there's only one foundation of the church. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is on the basis of grace alone, received by faith alone. And therefore, we're not united around our preferences. We're not united around our style of clothing or our style of music. The thing that unites us together is not our skin color. It is not our mother tongue. What unites us together is the oneness of the fact that we share in common denominator a gospel of grace that we all must receive by faith, and if we haven't received it, we're not a part of the church. 
If we have received it, then therefore we have in common one Savior, one cross, one resurrection from the dead that Christ was raised, and we have one hope in Him and Him alone. So there was one church. That is so crucial. It's crucial to see that here. And then you'll notice that not only is the church united, but then there is a church that unifies around the one gospel and one message. Only when the church unifies around the gospel message of grace are we adequately prepared now to go minister elsewhere, to take that gospel and to go widely, to minister in our families, to minister among people who are different from us, to minister among our co-workers and our neighbors and the and the people that we go to school with, and the people that we are working around, or whatever it is, and other people of different cultures and other languages around the world, it's the gospel of grace that can be brought to any of those people. Why? Because it's not saying you have to do X, Y, Z. It's something you must receive by faith and have that gift of eternal life on the basis of grace because of Christ. That is the only way to receive the gift of eternal life. We don't want to go around placing these burdensome yokes of legalism on the necks of everyone that we talk to, saying, well, you've you got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do this if you're really going to be a Christian. That's not the gospel. Does that, am I saying that we need to be sure to encourage people to walk in holiness of life? Yes. The gospel of grace always leads us to walk, what? In obedience and to repent and to certainly turn from sin. But we want to point people to the Savior. We want to point them to a Savior who did the heavy lifting. The Savior who is, frees us from the burden of keeping the law. He did it for us. The Savior who deals with us on the basis of grace. The free, unmerited favor we have in Christ. Let me conclude with this series of questions. Do you preach the gospel of grace to yourself? How often do you remind yourself I'm saved on the basis of grace. Do you preach the gospel to yourself? Is your joy rooted in your performance? How well you live the Christian life? Is that where your joy is? This week I'm not doing so well, therefore I have no joy. Is your joy rooted in your bank account? Is your joy rooted in your successful completion of the disciplines of the Christian life? I've prayed earnestly today and I prayed earnestly yesterday but I haven't prayed uh, uh, for the last week before that and so why even come to God do you do the kind of games where you say well if only if I do this this and this then God will be pleased to hear from me today no that's not the gospel of grace that's the gospel of, of I must do this and this and this and then God will accept me that's merit or is your joy rooted in how well your kids are doing or how well they're performing in their school or other areas of life? Is your joy rooted in your GPA average? How well your grades are looking? Is your joy rooted in how well other people are loving you? Is your joy rooted in how well you love other people or even love God? Or is your joy rooted in the fact that God loves you and has embraced you in Christ with all of your faults, all of your failings, all of your areas of, of, of um, sin and, and rebellion, He still loves you 
And he has given himself for you on the basis of grace. Not waiting for you to become likable and lovable. He loves you in the midst of your failings and failures. Let's pray. Lord, we realize there have been great battles fought in the past over the gospel. Help us, Lord, to keep fighting for the gospel, even in our own thinking, in our own minds, our own hearts. Help us not to become legalists the longer we walk with Christ. We pray, Father, that you might help us to become energized, motivated to serve you because of the gospel of grace. We pray that you would help us, Father, to Break through the lies of the evil one. There's someone here today, Lord, who's been constantly thinking in the back of their mind, I have to do a better job before God would ever love me. I'd have to do a better, uh, live my life better if God would ever forgive me. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to them the glories of the gospel of grace today, that they might come in humble repentance and faith, that they might understand the joy, the unspeakable joy of all the riches of grace we receive because of Christ and on the basis of grace. Father, I pray that you would help us today to truly celebrate the gospel of grace, to treasure it and to never let it be exchanged as something that we give away or some kind of phony thought that we must receive the gift of eternal life and the blessing of being accepted by God only if we do X, Y, or Z. Lord, help us, we pray, to be truly amazed by grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.